Welcome to the Night Parlor. Joshua Rex. It's November 1799. Jonas Lane, the acclaimed world's greatest violist who performs on a notorious viola known as the Inamorta, is weary of the touring life and plagued by a terrifying reoccurring nightmare of a monstrous wolf. Commissioned by Count Rufus Canis, he travels to Teethsgate, an eccentrically opulent castle where things are not as they seem. Something ghostly clings to the castle and its bizarre family, and the Count's seductive daughter, Deva, has a fearful and powerful secret which will force Jonas to confront one of his own, and the reality that his nightmare may be more premonition than dream. S.T. Joshi calls the Enamorta a splendid example of old-time Gothicism, a Golgotha of horror and gru, live and with deaf character portrayal and crisp narrative pacing. Joshua Rex continues to demonstrate why he is one of the most dynamic young writers in the weird fiction field. Pre-order available now at weirdhousepress.com. Hello and welcome back to the Night Parlor. I'm your host, Joshua Rex. Today, I'll be speaking with weird fiction writer Curtis M. Lawson, author of, among many stellar books, The Envious Nothing, a collection of literary ruin, forthcoming from Hippocampus Press, and the artist Rebecca Clegg, a Midwest painter of eerie landscapes and the album covers for a number of esteemed metal bands. She has also created the cover for Curtis's new collection. Curtis and Rebecca, I'm thrilled to have you both here. Thank you for joining me in the parlor. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Josh. It's good to be back. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have you back, Curtis. You were my first guest, uh, <laughs> and, and this is my first episode from Providence, Rhode Island, my new home, so I guess first first all around, this is great. Um, Curtis, I want to start with you, since the Envious Nothing is you know, sort of the focus of our discussion today. Um, I was honored to be one of its beta readers and uh, was stunned by both the range of horror and the emotive power uh, contained in the stories. Uh, as I mentioned in my blurb for the book, uh, the quote was, the exquisite irony is that, the exquisite irony here in this collection is that nothing is ultimately very much something and a decidedly beautiful something at that. Uh, never has the void been so paradoxically conceptualized as simultaneously oblivion and the nascence of dark potential. Um, would you talk about the theme of nothing in this collection and why you decided to focus on it? Sure. Um, so I got kind of obsessed with the idea of nothing starting after I did Those Who Go Forth Into the Empty Place of Gods with Doug Rinaldi, which is a much different kind of book, very, very pulpy and kind of black comedy-ish and silly. Um, but Jared Collins from Mississippi Bones wrote an introduction for that where he talked about kind of the concept of nothing in art being birthed from nothing into the minds of artists and all this. Um, in this kind of silly way, but it, it was really beautiful at the same time. And that concept of, of nothing as this force 
it is something we can't understand, something beyond, you know, beyond something, um, stuck in my mind for a long time. And it started creeping into other stories. Um, most notably for this, I guess, was the, the kind of titular story, you and I in the envious nothing. And after writing that story, I decided I wanted to write more in that vein. And I looked at some of my existing stories and I found that there were there kind of um, parallels within existing stories where maybe these ideas were in my head and I wasn't fully conscious of them. Uh, something like um, the happiest place on earth, which has this black mist, which is encroaching in on this amusement park and on this child. And um, I hadn't written that to with, with the nothing in mind, so to speak, but I think these kind of thoughts were just where my head was at for a long time. So as I started more consciously thinking about it, I wanted to explore the idea of nothing as both an antagonistic force and as a source of unrealized potential. And I got the opportunity to, to do that in a lot of different ways, which when I approach a collection, I guess, I want to be able to write different kinds of stories, but have some sort of theme. And when I did Devil's Night, it was easy because all the stories take place over the same over the same night. Devil's Night is in Detroit are kind of the central themes. Um, and I was able to do some psychological horror and supernatural horror and body horror, you know, all these different things in there and keep it tied together. And by exploring the concept of nothingness and the void, um, in different ways. I was able to still keep a theme to the collection, but explore a diverse range of horror and dark fantasy, I guess. Yeah, and there's a notion in these stories of, well, of course, it's called the envious nothing, but nothing actually wanting to become something. something. And, and I, we had a discussion recently where I mentioned that it reminded me this idea a little bit of a Ted Hughes poem, uh, where he talks about water wanting to be and it. It, it goes to a place and it comes weeping back. It goes to a place, it comes weeping back. It's just trying to become something uh, and it ends up just being in the end totally clear. Uh, do you find that there was some resolution to this notion of nothing at the end of this collection? Do you find like you came to a place where you sort of understood it more or the, or the, the notion of what you were going for more than when you began it? I think I, I definitely understand it more and... Um and have a, a better sense of, of the concept that I was wrestling with. But I don't know that I'm necessarily done exploring it. I think there's more to be, to be done. And it, as you know, because we have a collection coming out together and there's definitely some nothingness tied into at least one of those stories. Um, so I think it's something that I will probably continue to explore, but I, I feel much much more in tune with the nothingness now, I guess, after writing that collection. Yeah, there's something interesting about creatively exploring a, a subject. I mean, for some reason, you'll get something in your mind that you feel the impetus to, to work on. And, and it really is sort of the, maybe trying to figure it out, uh, trying to decipher whatever the reason is for that you're drawn to the subject. And uh, yeah, I, I suppose I, I can see what you're saying because it's not something that necessarily may resolve itself in one work. It may sputter out through several several pieces. Some people explore the same themes their entire lives. Uh, but I mean, that is a very big concept. So maybe it is something that'll keep coming back throughout your work over time. Yeah, and there's definitely themes that I keep going back to. I, I, you've read a lot of my stuff, probably most of my stuff. And 
I, I often go back to the idea of artists, you know, writing about artists, wrestling with art and with their, um, with not being good enough or for themselves or whatever the case may be, something like Blackheart Boys Choir, where he's wrestling to perfect this piece of music, or I wrote a King in Yellow story about someone who is trying to, you know, um, sees this image of Carcosa and he wants to create like this really beautiful art instead of the commercial state art he's writing. So, the, you know, I, I, there are definitely themes that I tend to go back to and, um, sometimes I have to stop myself if I'm doing it too much and be like, well, let's give it a, let's give it a minute. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the things I love the most about your work is uh, it's, it's somehow nihilism with a heart (laughs) in in, in the ways when it approaches nihilistic concepts or ideas of larger cosmic nothingness or uh, uh, feelings of maybe a broader human isolation there. There's always a heart to it. And uh, I think it's much easier to connect to it as a human being. And I think the message is more impactful and lingering, at least for me. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, Rebecca, I wanted to move on to you and ask you a couple of questions about uh, where your work comes from. Uh, in, on your Etsy bio, you write, when I have dreams, they, are, uh, they often are riddled with symbols of the collective unconscious. Uh, I try to recreate those stories within my paintings. It's a very brief statement, but uh, very intriguing. Uh, you know, reading this, one can clearly see how you were a perfect fit in this way to do the cover for the Envious Nothing. Um, but would you talk a little more about the way your dreams influence your art? I guess that could be your literal dreams, maybe uh, your your broader artistic dreams or vision, and how uh, Curtis's stories in particular set the tone for the specific painting on this cover. Okay. Um, well, I've always, since I was very young, I've always had like really vivid nightmares. And uh, I just got into kind of analyzing my own dreams and seeing recurring symbolism in them. And a lot of my dreams I notice are they're horrifying, but they're also like very beautiful in some of the imagery that comes up. And I will end up being inspired to try to recreate that if I'm painting. And I think the act of painting the dream kind of helps work out maybe what was involved in it in a way, if that makes sense. Um, and I felt really connected with a lot of the short stories in the envious nothing. Um, the whole idea of nothingness just kind of made sense to me. Um, a lot of the I have a dog coming in. I'm so sorry. We got some great haunted sound effects there. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, um, just this. Um, I had this image of like a very open space. Um, I like to spend a lot of time outside and we have a lot of prairie and um, just, I don't know, just this idea of being outside and this openness is kind of what I was inspired to paint while creating the stories. So I think that worked out. 
Can you tell me a little bit about your process? Uh, I've heard that you don't sketch your ideas uh, in no. pencil or color. <laughs> you just sort of dive right into painting, which is, I, I mean, I, to me, as a as a painter myself in sort of a previous life, um, that 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 is sort of incomprehensible. I, I suppose <laughs> I was never really a true artist in that sense. Where I remember reading that Caravaggio did that. Uh, he just sort of jumped in with the brush and. Uh, the, the skill, that innate skill just seems, uh, it, it just is, is mind blowing to me. Can you talk a little bit about your process? Sure, absolutely. And by the way, I think that your artwork, I was looking at it on your website and it's phenomenal. So, oh, <laughs> but you. I could see how, yeah, just diving in with a paintbrush might not be what would work for what you were doing. But uh, I had a, I had an art teacher, um, I think it was in college, a painting teacher, and she was very adamant that, you know, drawing is drawing and painting is painting. And if you are drawing to paint, like it's a drawing, just call it a drawing. Don't try to say it's a painting. Painting is like painting 100%. So um, I try to still keep up with that. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work as well. But I think that when I plan, if I try to do sketches, it just kind of overworks the idea and then it turns, it really just turns into a drawing. So I try to um, think more about mood and um, go off of the feeling more than what the end result image is supposed to be. And I find that the mood is like really what carries it for me. So, um, you know, listening to music or having read stories like the, you know, the book um, really was able to create the mood to go off of that. Does the mood influence your palate? Uh, do, when you begin in, in this nature, do you have a limited palette that you begin with or is it usually the full spectrum and then the mood just determines which colors you begin with? I usually work with a really limited palette, which I would love to expand uh, with more colors, but I just, I end up like really minimizing everything I do. I can't seem to help it. So I definitely have, based on mood, I'll have like maybe two colors that are like they have to be involved and that's the jumping off point. Okay, and well, I think, I, I would hazard to say that there might be some influence in, in your actual landscape being a fellow Midwesterner. Uh, I, I wanna talk about that a little bit later. We'll come back to that uh, with the palette and the color. Uh, Curtis, I wanted to jump back to you for a second here. Uh, you know, we were talking sort of about this concept of nihilism and, and, and I wanted to bring up Lovecraft into this for just a moment. Uh, China Mieville in discussing Lovecraft said he believed that HP's later fiction uh, the, the really truly cosmic stuff was really impactful and terrifying because it was written after the, the apocalypse of you know, post-World War I warfare and the advent of these huge revelations, these sort of epiphanies in physics that sort of dismantled our previous certainties of the world, which were also the facilitators of subsequent postmodern thought, as it were. Uh, I'm thinking about the theme of nothing it's sort of in a similar context here and perhaps in relation to the uh, recent sound clips and photographs taken of black holes uh, where nothing is sort of simultaneously 
terrifying and fascinating in this regard. Now, uh, I'm not sure if there's a connection here uh, or if any of this comes together in this way, but I know you're an atheist. And so I'm curious about your philosophical beliefs and how they might have or might not have informed your approach to writing about the concept of nothing for this collection. Uh, is there anything that you can frame or would like to talk about in that regard? Sure. Um, I, I imagine a lot of it is just kind of my my thoughts leaking into things, not so much um, a deliberate attempt to do that, but one, in thinking about cosmic horror, especially in the 21st century, I think in Lovecraft's time, cosmic horror was really scary because all of a sudden it was like there you know like we have all the as you said all these scientific revelations and it's like you know everything we believed is in question and um in you're in the shadow of world war one uh, world war ii is around the corner and um it's, it's just a really terrifying time to be an atheist like to, to believe that there's no nobody no cosmic father figure in your corner um and I think as we look at cosmic horror in the 21st century, it becomes a little bit more optimistic in a way because we've proven that we can get through hell. Like we've gone through all these terrible things and we keep, you know, I, I know some people will get, get mad at me for saying this, but objectively, if you look at the numbers, the world keeps getting better. Like, you know, like poverty is decreasing, mortality rates are decreasing, you know, like we have new problems, but all in all, the world is is getting better, and it's doing that without the you know without the need for for God or religion. Um, some might argue with that, but like from where I'm standing, and the idea that we live in a potentially a fairly malevolent universe, or at least one that's ambivalent to us, um, in that we're able to keep advancing and we're able to keep. Um, thriving i think there's something beautiful in that and very optimistic um and to me that's kind of what i want to explore in in modern cosmic horror is is man's place in a nihilistic universe but making something of that and you know um and maybe not always triumphing but um but not completely folding either so with the with the idea of nothing in here, and you know, as with cosmic horror and um, kind of mirroring older cosmic horror, I think that nothing as a force it is antagonistic largely, um, but it's something that can be handled and can be manipulated and can even be turned into a positive, as we talked about um, with unrealized potential, and you kind of see that in. Elvis and Isolde, there's parts where they're able to manipulate the void um, and almost use it in like manipulate it for their own purposes. And it doesn't always end well, but um, in similarly in uh, Secrets of the Forbidden Kata. So I think that just my, my view that even though there is no God, there is no set order, nobody's driving, so to speak, we're kind of driving and we're, we're not doing that bad of a job, all things considered, you know? Um, I, I think that's kind of beautiful. Yes, yeah, so you, you sort of suggest a more constructive human condition. Uh, it, it reminds me of maybe the Marcus Aurelius line, you know, that we're here for each other. Yes. What can we do 
for each other? How can we help each other? Uh, that, yeah, that, that nihilism maybe or the notion of that doesn't have to be something that's uh, uh, oblivion in that way. Uh, yeah. We are building something together. Yeah, that, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Uh, where, where do the ancient spirits and gods such as Angraboda fit into all of this concept? Well, I'm just kind of obsessed with Norse mythology. Well, mythology in general, but particularly with Norse mythology. Um, and that goes back before my black metal days, but it like definitely got elevated and amplified by being into black metal and like a bunch of Scandinavian bands and stuff like that. Um, so I've always just had an intense interest in that. And then Angerboda, there was, there's an artist named Darby Lager who did some Angerboda stuff that caught my attention. I started um, reading more. And then in Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology, there's this line where Odin goes to this grave at the end of the world to try to, he's trying to, uh, to save Balder. And um, he goes to this grave at the end of the world to see this witch or whatever, which turns out to be Angerboda. And just the, like the few lines that Angerboda has in this part um, of the myth really struck me in the idea of this grave at the end of the world. And there's a story in there called a grave at the end of the world. Um, so I've always liked to tell cosmic horror through different lenses other than Lovecraftian, because there's so many people using Lovecraftian mythos and, um, it's just been done a lot. So I, in the devoured, I used Norse native American mythology. Um, so, I, I try to jump around and see what cosmic horror might look like through different lenses, mythological lenses. Um, and Angerboda was just in my mind when I was writing these stories. And I liked the idea of this kind of iconoclastic, um, witchy figure that, that embraces kind of what many would consider maybe negative feminine traits um in chaos and all these things and i thought that she would be a, a fitting figure to kind of be a herald of the nothing or a conduit of the nothing and if you look at her relationship in myth with loki um you know if you look at loki as kind of the bringer of the end things like that so um part of it was just me being a nerd about norse mythology but i felt that that she was a an interesting figure to herald in the nothing. Yeah, as the mother of monsters alone. Uh, yes. Yeah, she's 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 stunning for that regard, and that fits in with the work. Uh, and of course, that's oh, just jump in there. That's the other thing. I didn't mention that as the mother of monsters. You know, like she's she's the mother of of literally the mother of death, and um, so she brings all this tragedy, which is born out of the nothing or whatnot. Um, yeah, so she was, she just felt like the perfect figure for it. And I didn't want to overdevelop her either. I wanted to keep her kind of nebulous and have her, once again, like the nothing, she's not always antagonistic. You know, sometimes she's on almost benevolent force. Right, of course. So, of course, she was the perfect fit to have her face on the cover of this book. Uh, and that was something I, you know, believe it or not, I did not notice the face right away. So it was even better to see that face tucked in the corner there. Uh, and, and then the little house in the background, you know, the, and I, of course this, this is based off uh, one of the stories in the collection. Uh, but Rebecca, I wanted to uh, ask you a couple of questions about, about this cover, about your, 
your work about the area of the country you live in. Uh, in listening to your interview with Curtis over on his podcast, Weird Transmissions, uh, which is a fantastic podcast for any of my listeners, uh, go check out Weird Transmissions. Um, it was interesting to hear you discuss your preference uh, of creating rural rather than urban scenes. Uh, as a fellow Midwesterner for the majority of my life, I recognize the vastness that can be at the same time bleak and strangely beautiful. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to think of all that empty land as a sort of canvas on which I could project things from my imagination. Uh, and I'm sort of glad that I spent most of my time growing up in rural Ohio as opposed to a city because I think ultimately it helped me develop a really imaginative, uh, strong imaginative faculty. Uh, you know, there's nothing else for you to look at in these sort of landscapes. I was lucky. I grew up sort of on Lake Erie, north in, in the state. I know that you're in Illinois, and I'm not sure exactly where you are in Illinois, but I know driving through parts of southern, even mid-Illinois and Indiana, I, it, is, it is bleak. I mean, when you go through October, November, and I say that in the kindest way that uh, there's, there's, it's a lot of dead trees. There are a lot of rural roads. And again, it's got its own beauty. Uh, and you can see where the influence for, for this sort of horror can come in. Um, so anyway, going off on that long tangent, uh, do you feel similar in this regard? Uh, what does yeah. the Midwest landscape mean to you creatively? I, I do. I think that probably spending all that time in the bleak, open, flat landscape probably did help with uh, growing my imagination definitely I would agree with that and I do oddly think that those like gray browns of all the dead grass and trees are really beautiful and I'm very inspired by that and just the the monster mushiness of how the crumpled plants look um yeah that's inspiring and I just I find that I'm not interested at all in like the concrete you know building architecture sort of um, more urban looking artwork those images don't inspire me much and being in that atmosphere like being in the city is uh, not inspiring to me in that way I think when I go somewhere just really quiet and open and it's just plants that's when I really get jazzed to make something. Uh, recently, I had no idea what to be working on and I felt really uninspired. And uh, one of my girlfriends sent me um, a location like, oh, go over here. There's a hidden waterfall and go hike over there. So I did that. And that's all it takes. It's just like an hour or two walking around outside somewhere like that. And I'm ready to paint some dead grass. <laughs> One of my favorite things about your work that that really stunned me that I don't think I've ever quite seen in landscape painting is that somehow the way you portray it, it's loyal to how it looks in life, but it almost looks like the dead grass, the trees, the sky, everything is charged with this sort of um, subdued kind of bioluminescence. It's like the actual grass that you, everything is charged with this sort of partial glow. Uh, and it's, it's really stunning because it, it lights up the entire picture in a way that doesn't, 
doesn't make it garish in any way. You know, you don't have to slather on too much ochre or too much yellow. You're like, you're not, you're not going for, I love Vincent van Gogh, but uh, sometimes it's just, it, it's garish in that way. You know what I mean? Where it's, it's like, yes, okay. I understand that this is a brilliant yellow. This is, uh, we, we don't necessarily always need that in landscapes, right? Uh, sometimes you get away from the truth, I think, of the, the scene if it's too charged with color. And you just sort of have this really subtle way of communicating these tones that I've never quite seen. And they're also really sort of ghostly in that way without, again, you know, bringing in too much fog or, or making things too spooky in, uh, you know, making clouds too gray. You just have this nice balance. Uh, is that something that you're consciously trying to do? Is that something that's taken you a long time to develop? How is, how is that developed? How are you able to communicate these sorts of things powerfully in your landscape? Um, I'm so touched that you picked up on that because that is something that I've been working on for so long. So that really meant a lot to hear that you could see that. Um, I think that, that the life that you feel when you're outside in nature, though, you know, if you're in a forest, there's just this like hum of everything that you're surrounded with. And there's this constant breathing and movement. Every little leaf and every little blade of grass is alive and doing something. And um, that's something that I was really moved by maybe like in my late teens, early 20s, I really started to notice that when I would be outside. And it is something that I have consciously tried to have come across in my paintings. And I didn't know if that was working at all. So getting that feedback from you really meant a lot. Thank you. Oh, it reminds me a bit of a, a line by Emily Dickinson, where she says, uh, nature is a haunted house, but art a, ha a house that tries to be haunted. And I think you, you sort of straddle that line with your work where especially a scene as seemingly dead or, or maybe prosaic a, as a Midwestern landscape can be really hard to communicate in, in a way that shows it alive. And so you just do a wonderful job doing that. And it's, it's also sort of exciting to hear someone talk positively about the Midwest landscape. I know David Foster Wallace does. Uh, he spent time, he went to, speaking of Emily Dickinson, he went, he lived in Amherst, one of the, graduated Amherst College and, uh, you know, lived on the East Coast and would talk about how, well, it just wasn't the Midwest. It just wasn't as beautiful as the Midwest. And so uh, you, you don't often hear uh, the Midwest celebrated in that because of all the, the uh, sort of the quiet deadness of the, uh, the, long, the long bleak winters and such. So uh, yeah, just, just, just wonderful. Uh, I wanted to ask you both a question here, sort of a group question. I know you've both been involved with, now correct me if I'm wrong here, but, but really black metal, right? In your own way. Am I correct in, in it being specifically black metal, Curtis and Rebecca? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Curtis, you as a musician, if I recall, and Rebecca as an artist for, uh, for, for album covers. Uh, are you both still fans of the music in general? And how, if at all, do, does this influence your own personal work presently, I guess I should say? Do you want to go first or you want <laughs> I could go, I'll go first because my answers are shorter than you. Even, even okay. if you guys want to have a discussion about this, that would be fine too. Because <laughs> I know very little about it and I'd be interested to hear your back and forth about the topic. 
I, I still very much enjoy the music. I'm not like as cool anymore. So I'm not <laughs> up on all the new bands. There's so much to listen to. Um, but I still enjoy listening to black metal quite a bit. And I do often listen to it while I'm painting and I still am inspired by it. Definitely. I am even less cool than Rebecca because she just showed me a new band from like 20 years ago. <laughs> um, it, yeah, I, I, I listen to I listen to black metal still pretty regularly. I went through a phase where I kind of tried to distance myself from it, um, but I just found myself gravitating back to it. And as far as how it impacts my art, I think it's I don't know. It, it, I was so, it was my life for a long time when I was a, in a very formative age. So I think that it just shapes a lot of my interests and a lot of my, the way that I, I came to see the world, whether it's through, directly through black metal and ideas through that music or from me finding fault in ideas presented in black metal music. Um, and as far as the imagery and stuff, I, I, I constantly pull from, that sort of palette in in so much that I do, whether it's um, whether it's kind of the the Nordic pagan um, kind of bleakness of of something like the stories in the Envious Nothing, or um, something like those who go forth into the empty place of gods, which is a little bit more cartoonish and brutal. Um, I'm constantly pulling from that that experience, I guess. And it just very much shaped my, my artistic tastes. And I think that there's, for anybody who was around, now this is where I'm going to sound really old. <laughs> so, you know, black metal is dead when I was a kid. Um, when I was a kid uh, in the, in the, like in the nineties, black metal was at this, like this incredible magical point where there was all this terrible, beautiful stuff going on and people were getting murdered and churches were being burned down and all this incredible music was coming out. And, uh, and it was this, this wild, just carnival of crime in art. And, um, and I had never experienced something that felt so rebellious and so, um, so, iconoclastic and atavistic it was just it captured everything i needed at that point in my my adolescence in my early adulthood so there's just something about being part of that zeitgeist at the time i think sticks with anybody who was part of it and it, it really clings to you and stays a part of you um and i know anybody who was who was really part of that at the time that I know still feels that way. Um, would you agree with that, Rebecca? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree with you. Yeah, it, it was definitely uh, something, something uh, attractive to be involved in and to feel a part of, for sure. And I should mention that I still do album covers. So if anybody needs some. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that the music still, uh, I, mean, I guess not to make a pun here, but colors your, your palette, Rebecca, uh, when you, when I, well, okay, obviously you're still doing covers. So, I mean, you're going to listen to the music and you're going to 
determine what you'd like to do. I'm sure you have conversations with the bands, but um, I suppose in your painting in general, uh, do you still go to black metal for any uh, inspiration or, or I suppose mm -hmm. uh, the determination of the mood for a piece? I do. Um, I usually, if I'm if I'm trying to stick with a certain mood, then that will cause me to be careful with my, what music I listen to while I'm painting. Because I'm always listening, like I'm always listening to music at home, and then I'm always going to listen to music while I'm painting. So I have to be cautious that um, if I'm trying to do something that needs to look a little bit lighter and brighter that maybe I'm not listening to black metal and if I'm trying to do something a little bit darker maybe I'm not listening to 90s house music <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I gotta be careful with that sure. well as I mentioned you know the bleakness of the cover for the envious nothing really definitely reflects the collection's contents. Uh, for me, it was the perfect illustration for the work overall. Uh, do you guys have any plans to work together on future projects? Never yet. Never. <laughs> <laughs> this is a one and done. One and done, yeah. It was perfect, beautiful, and now it's over. <laughs> um, no, we, uh, we're doing a small thing right now. Do you finish it? No, no. <laughs> it's not done, but it will be. It will be. Uh, so we're doing kind of um, an experiment for a bigger project, but for Weird House Magazine number two, um, we're doing kind of a, an illustrated poem thing. I don't know if you're familiar with um, like William Blake's uh, illuminated manuscripts, um, like the Marriage of Heaven and Hell, that sort of thing where, so the poem will be kind of, kind of floating there within the artwork. Um, and Rebecca's working on the artwork right now. So, um, and we're hoping to do a volume of poetry like that. Sounds thrilling. I will look forward to that. Absolutely. Uh, the Envious Nothing is released uh, June 14th uh, this month from Hippocampus Press. Uh, go check it out. I will have links also to Rebecca's fantastic artwork. Uh, uh, thank you so much, you guys both for being with me today. I really enjoyed uh, discussing this collection and uh, learning more about your work, Rebecca, and of course, uh, having you back on the show, Curtis. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right, guys. Take care. We'll talk to you again soon.